0: Hello and welcome back to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and I am delighted to be back after a slightly extended sabbatical to recover from 2020, survive lockdown three, and more excitingly, have a little refresh of this here podcast. Behind my dulcet tones, you can hopefully hear our gorgeous new music. If you flick your eyes down to your phone or wherever you're listening, you can see our beautiful new branding, and if you look carefully at the picture or at one of our animated trailers on social media, you can see two little people walking and talking. And that heart, a place for deep, relaxed conversations about life and values and our deepest differences has not changed because your overwhelming feedback was more please So we're very much looking forward to delivering that. Aside from our sound and our look, The other major change is that we're going to be releasing the podcast in series or seasons. So weekly rather than fortnightly, but not all year. And this is frankly in order to help the team have more healthy rhythms. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. We're really excited you're here. And you can expect every episode to hear a conversation I've had with someone with some kind of public voice. Actors, comedians, journalists, novelists archbishops, artists, politicians, as far as possible from a wide range of views. I ask them to reflect on what they hold most sacred, their deepest values, if you will, and trace how they've tried to use that voice, that public platform, in a world where we're quick to retreat into our tribes. I'm learning and trying, imperfectly, to model a kind of listening which doesn't jump straight to all the ways we may disagree on faith or politics or any number of other issues, but instead seeks to understand and, I hope, build empathy. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Ahmed Jalili. Ahmed is a stand-up comedian, actor, writer, producer, and grew up in Kensington with his Iranian family. He's appeared in Mamma Mia 2... Snatch, His Dark Materials and The Infidel, among many other films. He currently hosts the quiz show, The Winning Combination, on ITV2, and you can buy tickets for his Zoom stand-up tour and hopefully later in the year for his real-life comedy tour. We spoke about the impact of the Iranian Revolution on his teenage faith, how he sees comedy as a very serious vocation to bring joy and his experiences of dealing with racism. I really hope you enjoy listening. Right, we are going to kick off with the big juicy question at the centre of the podcast about what you hold sacred. I do try and give guests warning because it's not exactly a small talk kick-off conversation. You've hopefully had a little bit of time to ponder on it. When I ask you what do you hold sacred or what your sacred values are, does anything bubble up within you?
1: First of all, I think this is a wonderful podcast. I've been listening to it and it's such an important thing to discuss as humanity seems to have moved away from the sacred, which is why we're in so much trouble right now. So I really congratulate you on focusing on sacred values and and moving towards the sacred uh, because I know this is something I was aware of when I was six years old. I had a For me, the most important thing is is as a six-year-old child, I knew that what we were as human beings. I knew that we were spiritual beings, and and I suppose that's my first sacred value that I hold very dear and would fight for, actually. I mean, it doesn't sound (laughs) correct to fight for it, but it's something that I felt as a six-year-old child. You know what, what... I think most children have this, where they lament that they're born into the family that they're in, and they and I locked myself in the toilet, and I just thought, my goodness, why am I here? Why are these people in my life? And I made a decision that I was a spiritual being, and everybody were, was robots, and they were all there for my um, spiritual progress. <laughs> wow, <laughs> which is amazing that I, I've had that. I think I was six or seven years old. And I really believed I was a spiritual being. But no, I didn't think anybody else was. I just thought I was. And everything was a mirage. Everything was a a, a shimmerer. And then the very next day, something extraordinary happened. We'd gone to, there used to be a fun fair in Battersea Park in the 1970s. I think it was 72, 1972, 73. I can't remember if I was six or seven years old. And we'd just gone to the fun fair. And on the way back to our car, it was nighttime. It was cold as well. So it was, it was an early dark. It was like six o'clock and it was already dark. And I just saw, and I was very upset by this, I saw what looked like a dark person. I think he was Pakistani or Indian being set upon by a bunch of skinheads. There was three of them who just saw him walking and they attacked him, they hit him. And I watched this thinking, you know, why are they doing that? They were hitting him and they were with a girl as well. And they all started hitting him. Even the girl was smacking him. They were saying all kinds of awful things. And he ran away. But I remember thinking, my goodness, they really don't think he's a spiritual being. They really, quite aside from all the racism that I was witnessing that really upset me as a child, the thought then crossed my mind was, what if he's a spiritual being like me? I actually thought that. I thought as the only spiritual person in the world and everything is a shimmerer, um, and a mirage for my benefit, what if that man was also a spiritual being? How awful that those people didn 't see him as a spiritual being and they just hit him and that 's wrong. I remember thinking that 's really wrong um, and, and I think that is my my sacred value that we are all spiritual obviously you you, you get older and you realize that it 's not just you who 's a spiritual being everybody 's a spiritual being, so so I think that's my first sacred value that everybody is a spiritual being. Gosh, that has blown my mind a bit
0: because I have a six-year-old, and uh, the sort of specificity and the depth of that thought process is uh, really. He's already
1: detached time. from you. That's he's already in a toilet thinking I've got to get away. <laughs> Everyone is a robot in my family. <laughs> Amazing.
0: I I would love to hear more about your childhood. I think it's always helpful to locate someone in their story and get a sense of the influences on them, particularly any big ideas, religious, political or philosophical. But just paint me a word picture of uh, young Omid and how you grew up.
1: Well, this is I was born into an Iranian Baha'i family and I was raised in London, in Kensington, uh, which happened to be near the Iranian consulate. My father was the liaison officer there, so um, he got a little flat nearby. And there, as you know, it's, the Bahá'í Faith is a minority faith in Iran. Um, so even as part of the Iranian community, I'm seen as a minority. And even within the Iranian com- community, you know, by, well, as I'm a minority, but even within the Bahá'í community people thought my family were a, bit, a little bit weird um, because we had a, a guest house and we always had people around. It was a bit crazy. So you, you'd like to think I was a minority within a minority. And then obviously feeling detached from my own family, I was a minority within a minority within a minority. The, the levels of cosmic dislocation <laughs> are, are mind-blowing. But I was raised in Kensington in London. So I'm a central London boy. You know, I've, I've, uh, I was raised a stone's throw from Kensington Palace. I used to play in um, Kensington Gardens, which is close by there. And it's a very multicultural um, area. So I was very much around people from different ethnic backgrounds and also seeing lots of celebrities all the time. I remember seeing Barbra Streisand walk past and thinking, oh my God, Dustin Hoffman just walked past. Isn't he short? So <laughs> it was uh, it was a remarkable place to grow up, but, but very much um, raised within a, a quite a loving community. The Baha'i community is a very loving community, and it's a very multicultural community. So I was very aware of my Iranian roots, but I would go to Baha'i meetings, and there'd be Irish people there and Nigerian people there. So I did get a very good sense of the world um, growing up, but I also got a sense that, you know, very difficult time in my life was in my early early adolescence when the Iranian Revolution happened and um, Baha'is were being persecuted. And I think that had a massive impact on my upbringing because when you talk about spiritual values and what are the values that you live and die by, well, here were people in Iran who were given the opportunity to recant their faith. The Baha'i faith is seen as, I wouldn't say it's outlawed, but it's certainly Baha'is, even now in in 2020, they don't have jobs, they can't go to university. So at the height of the persecutions of the Baha'i community in Iran, around 1980 to 1984, where the Baha'i administrative order, there's a national assembly, they were all murdered, basically, and then there was a second national assembly, and they were murdered too. Um... But they were given a choice. They were saying, you have to recant your faith. Just say you are no longer a member of the Baha'i faith. You must say you no longer believe and you can be free. And they all said no. Wow. Um, And and I think that is, to me, holding on to the sacred to the most extreme. And these are people in society, people who had good jobs, People with families, and they just said no, which I think is the ultimate test of your faith. Are you, and knowing there's death coming if if you if you don't, and and these people to say well, well, well there's no there's no point living my life if, if my sacred values are taken away, and if you look at the sacred values they were living by, were you know like this the unity of religion, the oneness of mankind. I mean, it was all pretty sweet things to. You know, live or die by. But uh, I, 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 if you ask me, w- w- would I do the same thing? I, I really, do, I don't know. But that had a profound effect on my life as an adolescent, hearing of family members who were executed, people who had their livelihoods taken away. So it made me really look at faith and think, and, and think about: I was born into this faith. What is it? What yeah. is it that people are dying for? And I think that's how, that's probably why my, my spiritual journey and a relationship with the Baha'i faith uh, grew, because it was very much in the news as well.
0: I just wanted to, I know some listeners will have heard the episode I, I did with Rain Wilson, so they will have had um, some listeners maybe Baha'i, but quite a lot of listeners might not have encountered anyone who is Baha'i or, or really feel yeah. like they have a handle on what the faith is is so it would be really helpful just to hear your take on you know what does it actually look like in your life and maybe a couple of the core tenets if that is a sort of appropriate way of framing yes it.
1: i think so i think the the baha'i faith is a faith that um historically um grew out of islam in the same way christianity grew out of judaism so there's a connection but there it's a completely independent faith and um, the prophet founder Bahá'u'lláh believes this is the ancient faith of God, eternal in the past, eternal in the future. So there is, in essence, faith is one. God is not five, six, or seven. That the, the unnoble essence is one in origin. And um, every now and again, in different places, a a faith is uh, is, is rises up and tries to influence. The society, which is why it's a very powerful thing that the, the connection between faith and society, which is what your podcast is trying to do. How does that practically work? Um, how does religion actually affect society? So, so it's a faith that started in um, Persia in the mid eighteen hundreds, and um, and now is the second most widespread faith on the planet, and believes that religion is not just about being part of your community and having a nice, cozy time. It's about, it's a faith that believes in actually breaking down all the barriers, actually even religious barriers, that we are one, that we are one in essence, and all the problems of the world will be, I suppose, healed through uh, world unity. But, you know, so that's a, just a quick capsule idea. Yeah. But faith in essence is one, and the Baha'i faith is is the latest, but not the last installment of the ancient faith of God.
0: And it sounds like you inherited this faith. You grew up in a Baha'i family who'd fled Iran and grew up in this sort of crazy, slightly illegal guest house in a flat <laughs> yes. in Kensington with uh, Iranians coming through who needed medical treatment, you know, right next to uh, Kensington Palace. And that there was this, you know, real, the Iranian revolution and that being in the news and the persecution of Baha'is really uh, pushed you. I guess, to take your faith seriously for yourself. Yeah. Have you ever had points where you have had crises or you felt very distant from it or you might have called yourself non-religious or whatever it was, or has it been a sort of steady heartbeat?
1: It's, it's been a steady heartbeat, but it's been something that um, I've become more conscious of you know, fr- from those early years of thinking I was the only spiritual being on the planet. Um, I, I've developed and thought much about My parents actually, because they did have this guest house, which was for sick Iranians who would come over looking for specialised medical help. And I became a translator as well when I was ten or eleven, and helped out with the family business. And I always remember their spirit of service. And my parents taught me that because you you have to serve. This is what it means to be a Baha'i is to serve humanity. And actually, we've stumbled upon another. Sacred value, which is the the, the spirit of service. Because um, when I started thinking about things like career, I often joke about doing comedy to to heal the wounds of my childhood. Most comedians are <laughs> we're really damaged individuals, but, and we're we're healed through the laughter of strangers because nobody gave us attention. And I think there's always there's an element of that in me as well because I was raised in a in a guest house and was very much ignored as a child. Um, but once you get over that, and once you start performing, then you start thinking, well, is there an element of service in what I do? And once you make that adjustment and see even something like stand-up comedy, less of a job, more of a service, and do it and do it really consciously and think, well, how can I get an audience laughing joyfully? And as soon as I start thinking, well, how can I make things joyful for them? The material changed. It, it, everything became quite serious, and I think that's when I became better. Actually, when I had more of a, a spirit of service, so I think that's a very—it's um, a very underrated sacred value uh, to serve humanity. Even even in jobs like stand-up comedy, being stand-up comedy where you just think I've just got to get good so I can do big gigs and make money, and you think no, actually, it's it, the people who do it really well are consciously trying to serve their audiences.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to come back to um, to some of those threads. But first, talk to me more, because you speak about comedy so clearly as a, a very deep vocation um, and one that is informed by your faith. But I want to just unpack a little bit for me. Uh, it's a question that I explored with Sally Phillips, who was um, on the podcast quite early on, who uh, is a committed Christian. And we talked a bit about... Um, where the where the limits are, if they are, and how uh, how she combines those two, and I think that in some ways it's a stupid question because of course you can be a religious person and be a comedian. But I do think when we're thinking about the kind of broader public conversation, not always but often the sort of tone around comedy rests on um rests on a sort of default cynicism, sometimes even cruelty. And yeah. that those of us who are religious or spiritual, and I feel this in myself, uh, can default to basically sounding a bit earnest and a bit wholesome yeah. in ways that can be very meaningful, but isn't always very funny, except maybe in making people want to laugh at us. Um, so how do you how do you find what's funny whilst um n- I guess dancing around the edge of that pit of <laughs> cynicism and nihilism? Um Yeah, what's your sort of philosophy of what's funny that is still true to what you're trying to do?
1: That's a that's a tremendous question Um, because you can never you can never say there's but when you talk about you're basically talking about what 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 are your moral boundaries? What are your ethics of comedy? And can you have
0: those and still be hilarious?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think you can. I think that there's um, for me it's always difficult to. Trying, not that I would even try, but when I've seen people do comedy around human suffering, children's suffering, that kind of thing I find difficult to get laughs from, not that I want to. So, for example, comedians, every time there's a terrible thing that, that happens in the world, like 9 for example, um, there were a lot of jokes that night which... I would never have made, and I've, I've I've heard them. But then again, also, there is the, the, the comedy of making your peers laugh. And I think that the comedians probably overstep certain boundaries because they're trying to get a reaction from their fellow comedians. Like, look, I was brave enough to say this. I was brave enough to do that or this. And people say, whoa, wow, he's he's a proper comedian. But I've, I've always found it very hard. Like, for example, at 9-11, there was jokes I heard which would absolutely to do with people jumping from the 110th floor, people burning alive. And I just personally, it just didn't make me laugh. I just think that's, that, that, that's a real boundary for me. Um, I've seen people do it and still make me chuckle a bit, but it, it all depends what kind of laugh you make. I know Jimmy Carr, for example, he loves making a joke, which is um, it gets a laugh, then there's a kind of... Uh, he said, it's that... Uh,
0: Sometimes I we like. laugh out of the er, uh, isn't it? It's that we're, we're so uncomfortable yeah. that we
1: laugh out of nerves. I'm not sure it's yes. actually a big win of a laugh. I don't think so, but for him it is. And, you know, good luck to him and that that's okay. That's what he likes. I mean, if we take roasting, for example, roasting, which came out the Friars Club in America, where you, you love someone so much that you say awful things, that like you get someone, oh my God, you're so old. I've seen younger faces on cash. You know, people will make jokes about your looks and jokes about your career, and 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 I think within the structure of of that paradigm, that's a lovely thing. If you can say awful things in an affectionate way, that's that's great. I've I've laughed my heads off. I've laughed my head off at certain things like that. Um, But for me, I'm always guided by um, my own inner sense of what makes me really laugh. And I will always try it on a couple of comedian friends or even, you know, close family members. I'll say, well, what do you think of this? And if I see them laughing or smiling along with me, I'll know that'll also, it'll be the what I think is the right laugh. Because as I said, my my own personal belief is to uplift people, you know, to bring joy. And I, I just feel I can't really do that talking about awful human suffering that's just that's my own little and didn't that's you go my and see
0: sorry didn't you go and see the bahai leaders the universal house of justice about your comedy have i understood that right
1: yes i did it's very what interesting.
0: did they say such, i would love you to do a sketch about that what were they wearing what was the room like
1: <laughs> well i didn't see them all together it was all they, they'd heard i was the first bahai to have a tv show in the world anywhere let alone on bbc1 prime time. And, uh, it was individuals and they all pretty much said the same thing. They said, look, we want to give you a little bit of a few guidelines for you just to make you feel you can be the best comedian you can be. And the guidelines were very much like, um, they said, discuss the, the discourses of the day. And they said, just go for it. You know, don't, don't, don't hold back be a proper comedian, you know, talk about what people are into. I mean, there was no Twitter back then, but I presume they would be like saying if, if subjects are trending and you think you can shed some light on it, do it. You know, that's don't feel that you can't do that. The other thing was they said don't listen to other Baha'is. Don't have other religious people tell you what to do because you're a professional comedian They were saying, even me, one of the members of the House of Justice was, he goes, I come from a background of, you know, accountancy. What do I know about comedy? I don't know anything. So don't listen to me. You you do what you think is funny. Um, And they also said, be absolutely assured of divine assistance. And I thought that was incredible. And I said, what do you mean, divine assistance? I said, well, you know, if, if you're plugged in, hopefully you'll be inspired. You'll be inspired to do some great stuff. And and, and don't feel everything's got to be amazing. Don't beat yourself up and never be afraid to make mistakes. That was the other thing they said. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. And and by the way, all these things, there were subtle things that weren't just to do a comedy show, they're about in your life. Yeah. Sounds like good advice in general. Very good advice. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Don't listen to other people who are not professionals and be absolutely assured of divine assistance and i just thought wow that's in anything you do if you really do it sincerely and you do it with your, with your heart and if you are plugged in and you're really almost you know you got your hands up saying, come on help me somebody help me then divine assistance will will come
0: um you've mentioned you know that Uh, in passing, the impact of being a minority within a minority and seeing racist violence and, I don't know, maybe experiencing it in your childhood. And you've also written and spoken a bit about your acting career and sort of repeatedly getting cast as essentially violent Arabs. Um, Where do you think we are in this moment in our public conversations about race and identity and how we Live together in all our diversity a bit more healthily. Do you feel hopeful? Do you feel discouraged?
1: What might take us forward? I think what's happening is there's so much talk of it now, and it it seems to be the, the there seems to be two things going on at the same time. We see terrible racism and white supremacy seems seems to be on the rise, but at the same time, there are a lot of good things happening. After George Floyd, there's a lot of understanding, empathy progress in this and i think that it, this is the way the world is there's integration and disintegration good things happen bad things happen and i think that we are ultimately moving towards an inevitable um unity and diversity i mean when i talked about uh, unity being an important thing in the i mean baha'i's always talked about unity but like for example y- unity in religions how, how how can you have unity in religions Each religion is different, and I don't think the Baha'is always think that people should all become Baha'is. They think, no, keep your faith. But the way to have unity in religion is to give up the exclusivity that you claim to have. Once you take away the exclusivity, then you can have an idea that all these faiths come from the same spiritual source, and they were all you know we can all live a more unified life so there is there's a way of doing it and i think it's the same with 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 racism and with people progressing towards the idea that the oneness of mankind or the oneness of humankind is a fact it's just it's just a fact you know and you can't get away from it and once once that's that's established that's an established fact then you will no longer Tolerate racism i 'll give you an example i 'm a big football fan, and it 's very interesting to me the whole George Floyd thing happened while we 're in basic lockdown they're still they 're talking about as we speak now we 're talking about fans slowly going back into the stadiums, but it would be really interesting because when I was going to football matches, even up until two thousand and nineteen, you would hear the odd racist thing being shouted and still. Nobody doing anything about it. It'd be interesting to go back in the stadiums now, and I think whoever says something slightly, even slightly, you know, offensive, they'll be shut down and thrown out. I know, I know certain stadiums. Like I know, I'm a big Chelsea fan, and at Chelsea. If you say something racist, they'll just throw you out. I've not seen it yet, but it's interesting now that George Floyd has happened, the whole awareness. It'd be interesting how we don't tolerate that anymore, how we shut that down. But that can only be shut down as we move towards an idea that the oneness of mankind, that we're all essentially one and racism cannot be tolerated. So whilst at the same time we talk about uh, unity and diversity, we're all together, it'd be it'd really interesting what happens when people deviate from that. Do we, are we being nice about it or do we just say, hey, that's unacceptable and we stop it. And football grounds... Is very interesting because there was a game, even 2018, it was Chelsea versus Man City and a player called Raheem Sterling, was being appallingly racially abused by the Chelsea fans. And there was two or three of them, and the people around them did nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was only when the television cameras said this is, this is unacceptable, and then there was some kind of retrospective action, they found the five people and they've all been banned. But for me, the, the, the proof of the pudding is what happens when it happens in front of you. And I think that, that'll that be very interesting when we go back into stadiums.
0: Did you not get kicked off a football team for being a Baha'i?
1: Yes, I did. Tell me about that. <laughs> it was uh, at the university during... I went to university in Northern Ireland, the University of Ulster in Coleraine. And um, I played football for the football team, which was great. And I was one of only um, three, <laughs> this is funny, three ethnic minorities. It was, this is, by the way, this is in the northernmost tip of Northern Ireland, right. Northern Ireland p- predominantly Protestant country. And it was me, Niji Adesina, who's from Nigeria, and Seamus Gibson, who is a Catholic. And we <laughs> were seen as the three ethnic minorities. <laughs> so, um, but they, they, they accepted me, which was nice. That That was not the problem. And then there was a -a five-a-side league, and I joined a team called the Iranian Iranian Empire. Well, sorry, the Persian Empire they were called, and they were Iranian guys. And they were a bunch of science students who'd been at the university for a couple of years. It was my freshman year, I was first year, they were all third year and post-grad students. And it was only when I joined the team, we started winning games, and we got to the semifinal. And I scored the two goals, who won 2-1, and I scored the two goals to get us into the final. Because I, I was a good footballer, I, and they were like so excited. And one of, them, one of the guys, who was the most charismatic guy, I remember him, he was so charismatic, he said, listen, come back to my place, we'll make you a Persian meal. And then he said something about the Baha'i society in, at the university. He said, oh, have you seen those stupid Baha'is? You know, screw them, kind of thing. And I said, "Well, you know, they're okay." He goes, "Why are you sticking up with them?" I said, oh, "You know, I'm a Baha'i." He, he literally spat his drink out. He said, "What? Are you a Baha'i?" I said, "Yeah." He goes, "No." And it took it took him ten minutes to then believe I was a Baha'i. And then I was amazed at the the misinformation he's been given. You know, we talk about fake news now. Yeah, we say things like, "Well, hang on, can you verify that I was taught at school that a Baha'i meetings." you play a kind of blind man's buff where you, a kid is put in the middle of a circle and they put a blindfold on him. They play music and then he's, then he stops. He's got to tap someone on the shoulder and whoever taps, even if it's his mother, he has to have sex with them there and then in front of everyone. I said, well, where did you hear? This is unbelievable. He said, I was taught that at school. I said, my goodness, this is, this is incredible. So that kind of fake news was uh, put into kids' I mean, he was. He said he heard that when he was ten years old. Ten years old at school. He was taught that. So it's it's interesting to me that the the amount of prejudice he had. And this was a really charismatic, cool it guy. He had a beautiful girlfriend. He was. He had a great sense of humor. But he just he he couldn't stomach the fact that I was a Baha'i. And he said, "Look, I'm going to have to tell the other guys." And I said, "And he goes." Not, I'm not sure you can play in the final. We, I, I, they're not going to have a Baha'i playing in the team. I said, "Yeah, come on, I've got you two. We're in the final, mate." He goes, "I, I don't know." And then um, that was it. No, we used to contact each other on a, on, a, on a board at university. There was no like mobile phones and things, or no one even had a telephone and no emails. And they went and played in the final and they lost without me. But I, I, and then for the rest of my time at university, those guys who I played five or six matches with them to get to the final. Every time I look over them, they, they they divert their look. They never said yes, hello to me. They never looked at me. They never made eye contact. And it made me realize how deep the prejudice was and how they were just brainwashed into thinking Baha'is are the most awful people. So yeah, it's uh, it, it, when we talk about being a minority within a minority, this is... Uh, Obviously, this is, this is not like someone saying, recount your faith or we'll kill you. But I, I remember because this was the mid-'80s, I got a tiny sense of the prejudice. In you know, a Western country, them being ostracised.
0: Um, I'm going to finish with a final question about... Uh, what you've learned about engaging across difference. You know, you've encountered a lot of difference in your life, not least because there's not that many Iranian Baha'is in the UK. Um, so, how have you navigated those moments? What helps us to uh, connect with people who disagree with us or who are different from us in ways that are just a bit more human and more healthy?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. What I've learned. Well, what I've learned is there's something about Western liberal society that loves to polarize, and we see this so much now. We see people trying to, you know, sometimes even because people are bored, they want to see a fight. People want to take extreme opinions. I, I, I really believe someone like Nigel Farage is, is, is on television because he's got such extreme opinions. It's, it's fun to, I mean, I, every time he's on, I'll, I'll watch because it's, it's dramatic. It's, it's, it's polarizing. And I think that the the thing I've learned that actually people are not as different as we, we think they are. There's a lot of fake news to polarize just to try and get a rise out of people, just to try and get a reaction. And it's sometimes just, just for dr- the drama of it. So I've, <laughs> I've realized, going back to when I was six, thinking I was so unique, and that's such an egotistical thing, to think you see, we're so egotistical with children. We think we're the only people on the planet and God has created the world for us and everything else is a, a mirage. I think once we realize, what I've learned, that once we realize that we are all actually have the same wants and needs, then we'll treat people with with real respect. And it's the golden rule, treat others how you yourself would like to be treated. That is such a fundamental thing in all religions. And then when you realize that, you realize all religions the same then you don't have any problems with people from other religions. Then you don't have any problems with people from other backgrounds. You don't have any problems with atheists. I mean, I saw you talking with David Baddiel, and, and he was saying, you know, I think you, you, like, you like atheists as well because at least they've thought about things. At least they're not being tribal because it's what they were born with. At least they've actually come to certain conclusions and made decisions for themselves. So I think if you see that, you see that we're all actually far more you know, we're far more similar than we are different. I know it's a very basic thing, and I really don't want to finish on something uh, this basic. But I've, I've learned that. that and, I, and the other thing I've learned, which I think is very, very important, that all spirituality must lead to action. I think that's the one thing. I'm, I'm sick and tired of people who think that, oh, spiritual people just meditate. We say, no, no, no. The whole, the whole Baha'i model is about, it, it's about action. It's about doing things. They have these houses of worship around the world, which is for, for people. But they, they, they weren't created so people go and pray. They were created as an action to that community growing and developing. And they said, hey, let's make this more outward thinking. Let's include the whole world in this. So it's an action. Building um, a house of worship was an action. I think that, for me, is if, if things start and end with words, it's, it's, it's death. But you know, all spirituality must have action. And I think when I, when the day comes when I just get up and say a prayer and don't do anything, that is a day when my my death is more important than my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a dramatic thing to say because I'm trying <laughs> to polarize people. But those are the two things that I've learned.
0: Omid Jalili, thank you so much for speaking to me on the Sacred. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Sacred. Remember. Sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or, my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.